please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We left off in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. Let's pray together. Father, as we look again at the gift of your son, his death and resurrection, and what it means in our lives. We just ask that you would cause the hope of the resurrection to hit our hearts. And if there are some that are going through trial and difficulty uh, tonight, we pray that you would encourage them, that you would pour out your spirit upon them. Lord, for others where it's a really neat and wonderful season, Lord, may we keep this in our hearts, the hope of the resurrection. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit. Just take a moment to wait upon you, Father. We ask that you would reveal your heart to us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. What am I facing today? Take a moment to think about some of the things that you're facing today. What are the things that are weighing you down, that are on your heart and on your mind? One of the things that is very true is that you will rise unto eternal life if you're in Christ. I will rise. This will not be the end. This is only the passing to eternal life. What are the things that are holding you up from yesterday, from last week, from 10 years ago? The weight of sin, the heart-crushing blows of rejection. I will rise. I'm going to rise unto eternal life. I'm not talking about just rising past that difficulty, though that's often true. I'm talking about actually leaving this life. I will rise into eternal life and into heaven. What are things that you're concerned about in the future that are on your heart and on your mind that are weighing you down? Well, one thing we know for sure is we're going to break camp. We're going to go to heaven I will rise. I want you to think about tonight that you will have a physical resurrection. We're going to look at the resurrection of Christ and what that means for us to be physically resurrected. This body is going to be buried unless the rapture happens. The decay process is going to take place. Then Jesus is going to give the blast of his trump and the dead in Christ will rise first to receive a glorified body, to receive a new body. This, this physical body will be resurrected into a glorified body. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The way he was resurrected, we too will rise unto eternal life. If there's one thing I want you to remember tonight, it's this. I will rise. I will rise. I will rise because Christ is risen. There's those in the church of Corinth that are denying the resurrection of Jesus. They're not believing that the resurrection has, has taken place. And Paul's addressing them specifically. And he's saying, if you stop believing in the resurrection of the dead, then the whole hope of the gospel is gone. You can't remove the resurrection of Jesus Christ out. I'm glad that they were having this struggle because it is one of the best explanations and exhortation in all of scripture on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a great, great chapter. So let's look in verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? We looked at last week the importance of the gospel, how personal it was for the church of Corinth, how they received it, how important it us for us as well, 
And now Paul gets into the heart of the argument. He says, now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, yet some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead. In verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. So there was some that say, well, well, Christ is risen, but I'm not gonna rise. Believers aren't gonna rise. And Paul's saying, well, if you deny the resurrection for believers, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, then that would leave Christ in the grave. Verses 12 through 19 really build this case. If there's no resurrection, then what? What would it mean in our Christian lives if Christ didn't rise from the dead? In verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Our preaching would be completely meaningless. There's no substance. There's no meaning there. Christ died for our sins, no resurrection. Everything hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He claimed he was God and he claimed that he would rise again three days later. So if he didn't rise, that would make him a liar. That would then leave us dead in our sins. And the scripture tells us if there's no resurrection, our faith is empty. Faith is only as good as the object that it's placed in. A lot of people have faith, but they don't have faith in the one true living God, so it's empty. He builds this great case. If if there's no resurrection, where would we be? Yes, and we are found also false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So Paul's saying, look, we would be false witnesses. The apostle Paul, the other apostles who claim to see the resurrected savior, they would be lying. They would be false witnesses. We've testified of God that he raised him up, whom, whom he did not raise up, and in fact the dead do not rise. So if you reject the resurrection of believers, you have to then reject the resurrection of Christ. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. You can't separate the two. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The word futile means incapable of producing any result, ineffective, useless, not useful. May sound like a car that you own. It's futile. It's broken down. It's not useful. Time to let it go. And the scriptures declaring to us, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. It's useless. Again, there's no, there's no substance there. It's ineffective, and you are still in your sins. But also, the flip of all this is true. If Christ is risen, then our preaching is full. Our preaching is powerful. Our faith is upon the chief cornerstone. Christ indeed is God. If Christ is risen, then we're not still in our sins, we're completely forgiven. So we do see that all of these things are true. Then also those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This term fallen asleep in Christ is a polite way of speaking of those who have died in Christ. They've died physically as a believer in Christ Jesus. So all of those who are dead in Christ They've perished. There's going to be no resurrection from the dead. There's no eternal life for them. Now, that hits pretty heavy. I'm sure you have a list of loved ones in Christ who are, who are buried. And what it would mean is that there's no resurrection of the dead for them. There's no resurrection of the dead for us after we passed away. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiful. 
This to me is a really important verse in our study tonight. If there's no eternity, there's no eternal life, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then we are to be pitied. People are to look at our lives and they go, why in the world would you be living this way, going through this kind of suffering, if there is no eternal life? The Apostle Paul, he's sacrificing everything for eternity. He's putting everything on eternal life that he's going to heaven, that there's people that don't know Christ as our Savior, that are rising to judgment. He wants them to be saved. And so he lives his life in this way where he's committed to Christ. And he's saying, if there's no eternity, then you should look at me as, well, feel sorry for the crazy man. Feel sorry for the guy that, that's out of his mind. And sometimes I think we want the Christian life to make sense and take eternity off of the table. It only makes sense when eternity is in view. Some pastors have put it this way, that God would stamp eternity upon our eyes. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Christ is saying this is only gonna make sense in light of all of eternity. Have you found that God leads in your life through mysterious ways? Things that you go, well, I thought God was doing this. He took me on this journey. I trusted him, I walked in faith. It didn't turn out any way that I thought it was going to. Has anybody had life turn out the way that you thought it would? A lot of times it's better, but it's difficult and we have questions and we don't understand. I received a, a phone call this summer about a camp that approached the church and saying, we wanna give away this camp. And so would you come up and take a look at it and pray about it? And so we went and looked at it, our leadership team, and. We prayed about it and we felt, man, this is something that would really be neat. It would really be a blessing for our church and an opportunity for people to get up into the mountains and other churches to go for more reasonable prices. We prayed through the summer and that they were thinking about giving it to a church or giving it to a community group. And we received a phone call today. They gave it to the community group. You know, on Monday, they decided we're going to give it over to the, the community group. And I'm like, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> That's one less thing I've got to worry about is running a camp. I don't know the first thing about running a camp, right? And God took us on this journey of faith and we put together a proposal and we crushed the numbers and you know, our board met and board of elders and all these type of things. I don't know. I don't know why God did that, but I can say it was a fun ride. Am I a little bit disappointed? Yes. Do I trust God that he's leading and working? Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. But there's things that are much deeper than a camp, aren't they? I thought this job was a, an open door and, and God closed it. You know, my, my loved one passed away. My, my wife, my child, they passed away. I'm here I have this terminal disease. God's asked me and led me into to suffering. And you're thinking when I got saved, no one told me about all that. I thought that it meant that everything was gonna work out the way I wanted to in, in this life, and that's not the case. And Paul says, if it wasn't for eternity, this would be something that people should look on us as being pitiful, but in light of eternity, it makes sense. So what spoke to me today is I've gotta to try to live my life with the Lord here on earth with eternity in mind. It's gonna be forever with the Lord. And that's what we need to put our focus in, in our hearts and in minds on. If there's no resurrection of the dead, the Christian life is a pitiful joke. 
Without the resurrection, the gospel is deceitful and a delusion. The divinity of Christ rests on the resurrection of Jesus. He claimed to be God. The sovereignty of Jesus rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, him ruling and reigning. Our justification, being declared righteous by God, rests on the resurrection of Christ. Our regeneration, God being able to cause us to be born again, rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our ultimate resurrection, us entering into Eternal life with a resurrected body rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful that he is risen? Aren't you thankful that there is eternal life? You can turn to your neighbor and say, you are not the most pitiful. You go ahead, it's all right. You may look pitiful, but you are not the most pitiful, right? Verse 20, all the way through verse 58. Yes, I said all the way through verse 58. We should be here till about midnight this evening speaks of the reality since Christ is risen. The first few verses are hypothetically, if Christ were not risen, what would it mean? And now for the rest of the chapter, it's the truth since Christ is risen. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is risen. The tomb is empty. The first fruits of the resurrection takes us back to the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament. Christ was crucified on the Passover. He rose again on the feast of first fruits. Sunday morning was the feast of first fruits. You go back to Leviticus and you look at that feast, and they would bring the first fruits. That's why it's called that of their harvest acknowledging that all of it belongs to the Lord and anticipation of more fruit to come. Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection means that he's the first of more to come. So just as Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise. I will physically rise. God will give to me a glorified body. He'll give to you a glorified body. In verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Which man brought about death? Adam. His sin affected us all. And you might be saying, how? Everyone born after Adam was born with a sinful nature. Now, if you don't have kids, you may not believe that. Or if your child's only six weeks old, you may not believe that. But as your child continues to grow, you're going to realize they have a sinful nature, just like all of us. Do you ever have to teach your kids to lie? Did anybody teach their kids to lie? All right, this is how you lie. This is going to be an important skill in life. No, it's part of the sin, sinful nature. So that was passed on through Adam, but then Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the God-man, by man, also came the resurrection of the dead. Which man is that referring to? Jesus, who is all God and all man. He became man while he remained being God, so that he could bring us into the resurrection of life, eternal life. For as, Adam, for as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now does this mean that everyone is going to go to heaven? Because the scripture says all shall be made alive. There's churches that teach that. It's called universalism. As we look at the entirety of scripture, scripture interprets scripture, we know who are those that go to heaven? Those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who are made alive. So Christ makes those alive who trust in him for salvation. Verse 23, 
but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So God's saying there's an order to this, the whole resurrection of the dead. First Christ, then believers at the coming of Christ, then Christ is going to return physically here on this earth, and he's going to put everything under his feet, including death. He's going to rule and reign over every governmental system. Lord willing, this February, we're going to be going to Israel as a church. If you're able to go, I know it's an expensive trip, but it really is a trip of a lifetime. And I love the historical aspect of being in these places where Jesus taught on the Sea of Galilee. But I also think I love just as much to think about what's going to take place in the future in Israel. To stand on the Mount of Olives where the Bible says that Jesus is going to return at his second coming and it's going to split in two. That's powerful. It's reality. Christ is going to come. And I think what we're really longing for as we see all the turmoil and craziness in our world is Jesus come quickly. Jesus, I can't wait for you to rule and reign, for everything to be put underneath your authority. Verse 25, for he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Notice that death is an enemy. That's how God sees death. How do we get to the place of death as a result of sin? And God wants to annihilate death. He wants to bring to the place where death no longer affects his people, where death is destroyed. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is expected. So there's things that we're waiting yet in faith and anticipation for God to put under his feet in his second coming. Now when all things are made subject to him, the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. This verse teaches us that Jesus is the God-man who is willing to live underneath the authority of the Father. Here, all things are under his feet, but Jesus is in subjection to the Father. You always find Jesus glorifying the Father, saying, I'm about the Father's business. And in the Trinity, there's an equality. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all three God. Three distinct persons, but yet one God. But inside of that Trinity, there's an order where it's clear that the Father is in charge and Jesus is submitting to the Father. And then we find the Spirit is pointing to the Son. I believe firmly for all of us in our lives that God has set up an order for us to live under, to submit to his authority. And we want to be people that are under authority to experience all of God's blessings. We find Saul that we've been studying on the weekends, and I've been meditating on him a little bit more, and the passage has been unpacking to me. I, sometimes I give a message, and I'm like, it hits me after I'm done, oh man, there was a lot more to say. So I might teach chapter 13 again this weekend. But. but Saul, where he really missed it, is he was a man that failed to live under authority. Isn't that true? When he went and offered the burnt offering, if you were here on Saturday or Sunday, what he was saying is he's saying, God, I am not going to be a man who puts myself underneath your authority. And God said, wait a second. That's not all right. I'm going to be looking for a king 
that's after my heart that will live underneath my authority. So if Jesus was a person that submitted himself to authority, what are some of the places that God has put authority in our lives? There's an authority inside of the home where husbands that you're called to submit to God and be the head of your home. And then wives, you're called to submit to your husbands. And what we understand about this is it's not equality. It's not that your husband is greater or the father was greater than Jesus, but it's that God has set up an order. That's a lot of responsibility that's been placed on us as men. It's something we should take seriously. We're, we're the leaders of our home. We're servants in our home, servant leaders, and we should be submitted unto the Lord. And then wives, submitting unto your husbands. God's given us a governmental authority, and unless the government is asking us to do something that doesn't line up with scripture, we're called by God to come underneath that authority. At the point where they're asking us to do things that don't line up with scripture, then we have to obey God. And we see that inside of the book of Acts. There's authority that God has set up inside of the church with pastors and elders. And just like in the home, pastors and elders should take that very seriously and submit themselves unto God. And then that's the leadership that the Lord has, has set up. And so there's all of these different places that God has set up order. He's given you a boss at work. You're like, no, not the boss factor. Again, if your boss is not asking you to do something that's unbiblical or unmoral, and maybe it's not even the best decision, you can politely, respectfully bring that before them, but then you need to humbly submit yourself to them. That's the order that God has put up in your life. And all of a sudden, it gets really quiet in the sanctuary. Like, uh, We all kind of fight this, don't we? We want to be our own boss. We don't want to submit ourselves to authority. You're never going to get away from it. God is the one who has set up the order, and Jesus submits himself underneath the Father. Why? That God may be all and in all. It's for God's glory. Why do we submit ourselves to this order that God has put in place all around us? So God can be glorified, amen? That's the whole purpose behind it, is so that God can be honored and he can be clearly seen. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? This is a really confusing verse in scripture that's tripped a lot of people up. They read verse 29 and they go, so does this mean that it's okay to baptize for the dead? And Some of you are like, I've never even heard of that before. What does that even mean? And there's this practice where after someone has died, an attempt to try to redeem their soul, people will try this baptismal ceremony for them. And that doesn't line up with scripture because it's the choice that you make about Christ while you're alive that determines your eternity. And Paul is not approving or instructing baptism from the dead, but he's using this as a point. And he's saying, if pagans baptize for the dead, that means that they believe in a resurrection from the dead. So he's kind of using this to even spur on the church. Look, these unbelieving pagans, they believe in the resurrection of the dead, but you've lost sight of the resurrection of the dead. So are we clear? Are we square? Paul is not using this as an indication to baptize for the dead. It doesn't do any good. In verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Paul's saying if there's no resurrection of the dead, then why do I put my life on the line every hour? Why have I chosen this life of hardship if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no eternal life, if unbelievers don't stand before the Lord in judgment? Why would I go around sharing Christ and preaching Christ? 
I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. These are always kind of weird verses to read. I think maybe because of the way they're translated into English, it just sounds so arrogant of Paul. You know, it's like, I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord that I die daily. It's like, thank you, Apostle Paul. You know, <laughs> and I don't think that Paul is trying to be prideful in any way. I think there's some humility here. He's saying, if we were to try to put this into our language and the way that we speak today, of saying, it's all God's grace, it's all God's power, it's his moving in my life, and I've come to realize the importance of dying daily. But the way we read it in the New King James doesn't come across that way. But here's the point, and here's the principle. It's Paul saying, because Christ is risen, and I will rise, then I choose to die daily. And there's two things that are happening in this passage that I think are really important. Is one, Paul really means that his life is on the line on a daily basis because of the gospel. And you read the book of Acts, and he's going from one death threat to the next death threat to the next death threat, and he's saying, I'm really at the point of death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I wouldn't do that if there was no resurrection for the believers. And the other is, is that we have a very active, sinful nature, and we're to die daily, we're to die to that sinful nature, take up our cross, and follow Jesus Christ. My sinful nature needs to die daily. Does yours? I wake up selfish. I go to bed selfish. I eat lunch selfish. If I just let the selfishness run rampant, it's not a pretty picture. I have to die daily. I have to remind myself I'm crucified with Christ. My life belongs to Christ. God, I want to serve you and those who are around me. It's important. I don't think that we hear this a lot in church. We hear a lot, it's going to be a comfortable life. It's going to be an easy ride. No, it's not going to be an easy ride. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficulty. There's going to be tribulation. You're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake. You've got to choose to say, it's worth it. I'm going to die daily. Verse 32. If in the manner of men I fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Big question. What are the beasts of Ephesus? You go back to Acts chapter 19. There was a riot in Ephesus because of the Apostle Paul. Maybe those are the beasts that he's referring to. We also know this is the Roman Empire. Maybe he was thrown into the arena with wild beasts. We don't know. We don't know if the beasts are figurative of speech or if he really faced these lions. But either way, this was a difficulty that the church of Corinth knew. And he's saying, why would I willfully go through this kind of suffering if there was no resurrection of the dead? If there was no resurrection of the dead for the believers, this would be Paul's philosophy. He'd say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter how we live. We're simply food for worms. Once you die, there's no resurrection unto eternal life. There's no ability to impact people for, for all of eternity. People aren't going to stand and be in account for the Lord. So why not just party as much as you possibly can? At the same time, in Egypt, they would throw these big parties. And at the very end of the table, they would have a coffin that was carved out of wood with a, a a carved dead person, a carved skeleton inside. And it was this message that was given to everybody at the party. You better have as much fun as you possibly can right now because you're going to die. 
Before long, you're going to be in the coffin, so you might as well drink as much as possible. Get as stoned as much as possible. Does this sound like the mantra of our culture? What's growing in our city? Pot shops and breweries. Those are the things that are growing. Why? Because there's nothing after this life. So you might as well smoke as much pot as possible. I did a bad thing. Can I confess it? It's Wednesday night. I'm driving to Walmart. I'm turning on to Highway 83 on Academy. And someone's holding this big, giant pot sign for this new pot shop that's opened up. And they're all excited. So I put up my thumb like this. And they got all excited. And then I went. (laughs) Then I felt bad after I did it, you know. True story, though, that happened this week. (laughs) But though it's frustrating, I understand it. I do. Because people don't know Christ as their Savior. And because they don't know Christ as their Savior, there's no thought of being accountable before God and staying before God in eternity. So why not? Why not? And then I know some of you are saying, well, I'm a believer and I smoke pot. Why are you picking on me? Because God's got more for you. He's got more for you. God says in his word to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't be smoking pot and be filled with the influence of the spirit that God would intend. If you're honest with yourself, you're not being led by the Holy Spirit and being used to impact people for eternity while you're under the influence of pot. And God wants to set you free. And you've heard me say it before. Even though it's biblical, or excuse me, it's legal, doesn't make it biblical. There's a lot of things that are legal that aren't biblical. We're to have a different worldview because Christ died for our sins, because Christ rose again, because I'm going to stand before him in the resurrection of eternal life, then I want my life to count for more than just how much pot that I smoked. So it gets into the issue of alcohol. What does the scripture say about alcohol? To not be drunk with wine again. That issues are not being drunk, not causing someone to stumble. If you drink in moderation, that's between you and the Lord. But God doesn't want alcohol to control us. He wants his Holy Spirit to be able to control us. But if there's no resurrection for the believer, then why not? Then why not just go down this course of saying, I'm going to try to get as much pleasure as possible. And Paul's saying, I'm living for something a lot bigger than pleasure. In verse 33 Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Isn't that true? We've all experienced that at times in our lives on both ends of the spectrum. You know, at some point we may have been that evil company that corrupted others. At other times we were around those that caused our hearts to slip away from Jesus Christ. We don't want to insulate ourselves. I think that needs to be said. Jesus was the friend of sinners. We can't live our lives going, I'm never going to talk to anybody. I'm never going to know anybody that is not a believer. Man, Jesus, he hung out with sinners to point them to the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. But if your best friends on this planet are people that don't know Christ as their Savior, those that you're pouring your heart out to, it's going to influence you in a negative way. How did the church of Corinth get to the place where they weren't believing that there was the resurrection of the dead for believers, they were probably hanging out with some people that didn't believe that. There's probably some Greek philosophers that were coming around them saying, you actually believe you're going to rise from the dead? What are you smoking, right? Hanging out maybe with with Jews that didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead that were known as the, the Sadducees. Take a look at who you're pouring your heart out to. It's a good verse to keep in mind. Verse 34 
Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There's a lot more to live for than pleasure because people don't have the knowledge of God. And Paul's reminding us of that. He's awake to righteousness, awake to holiness. But some will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? That's a question, isn't it? How does God take someone who has been in the grave for 500 years and raise them up? Well, he has the power to be able to do that. And so it's the questions of the detail of the resurrection. Foolish ones, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. So in order for there to be life, there has to be death. And what you sow, you do not sow that the body shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. So the analogy is the seed. The seed gets sown, and here comes the grain, and here comes the wheat. And our body is a seed. It dies. We're in Christ. We're eventually going to be risen into everlasting life. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So even a seed has its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Isn't this true? God's created different kinds of of bodies. You have a very distinct, different type of body than animals. And this isn't cultural, but it is biblical. Men and women are image bearers of God. You're created with a soul and a spirit, an ability to receive Christ and become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the ability to speak verbally and to communicate. Animals are wonderful. I'm not going to try to pretend with you I'm not an animal lover. I'm just going to be honest about that. I appreciate animals. I'm thankful for animals, but I'm not one of those that just gets all warm and fuzzy over, over animals. But I know some of you do, and that's great. The Lord has given you that heart, but you do need to understand there's a difference between man and animal, and you were created in the image of God. We're thankful for animals, but animals were not created in the image of God. Verse 40, there are also those celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Celestial refers to the heavenly and then terrestrial is relating to the earth. And so God is saying and speaking, there's a heavenly body like Christ, the first fruit of the resurrection, and there's there's this terrestrial body that relates to this earth. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Different forms, different bodies that God has created. A different body for the sun, a different form for the moon and for the stars. In verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Consider this for just a moment. This terrestrial body, this body that relates to this earth, what is it? It's corruptible, dishonor, and weakness. As much as we don't want to admit it, we are very much in the death process already. Decay is setting in in our bodies. And God has designed it this way here on this earth so that eventually 
this body will no longer be able to sustain life. Whether it's a car accident or it's cancer or it's old age, it was designed to be corruptible to have an end so that we could put on incorruption. The resurrection, Christ, the first fruits of his resurrection, his resurrected body is not corruptible. Do you know how much money that's going to save you if you just settle into that? You're like, okay, it's happening. The corruption process is taking place. I don't want to be foolish. I'm a steward of my body. I don't want to rush this process along. I want to take my health seriously, but I don't need to do all these crazy things to try to prevent, you know, pretend that, that I'm not dying, to pretend that I'm not corruptible. On the back of your head is stamped an expiration date. You don't know it. I don't know it. But God knows it. He's numbered our days. We're corruptible. Also, our bodies, there's, there's an element of dishonor that's there. We don't like to acknowledge it, but a baby's born and they're so fresh and they're so new and their bodies are so, so wonderful. And then you get to a point where it's just not so wonderful anymore. We're trying to hide it the best that, that we possibly can. Not necessarily that there's anything wrong with that, but then it gets to a point where it's just tough. It's just difficult and there's a dishonor element that's there. And then there's weakness that's there. It's hard to watch. It's hard to see. It's hard to see loved ones go through. And you look towards the end of life. If you go into those elderly years, 80 and 90, and you go, wow, this is the way that God's designed it. But notice, then there's incorruption, there's glory, and there's power. When we move forward in this aging process, we're moving closer to this resurrection of eternal life. God's perspective is so much different than ours in this that he says that the death of the saints, precious in the eyes of the Lord, is the death of the saints. God goes, oh, this is good. They're trading in that old jalopy of a body for this heavenly version. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Speaking of this heavenly body this God has for us. Don't mistake this. This is still a physical body. Christ rose in a physical form. Your resurrected body will be a physical body that you can feel and touch and hug and eat. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, being a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Jesus Christ is the last Adam, and he gave us life. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. So we have this earthly body first, and then afterwards the spiritual, afterwards the heavenly. The first man was on earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So Adam came from the dust of the earth, but Jesus, the God-man, he came from heaven. And look at verse 8. This is beautiful. It's powerful. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. So there's an element where we're impacted by Adam. We've already talked about this. Our sinful nature. The death process. And but, this is how Christ impacts us. And so is the heavenly man. So also are those who are heavenly. I gotta tell you, in my years of studying the scripture, I never put together that Jesus is referred to as the heavenly man. Maybe you caught that a long time ago in your journey with the Lord. I caught it today, and I was excited about it. Look at this verse. Look closely what it says. It says, the heavenly man. It's speaking of Jesus. 
He's the heavenly man, God who became flesh, so that, so also are those who are heavenly, so that he could take us and make us heavenly, so that he could take us into eternal life. I think this is a great description of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the heavenly man. He came to this earth with heaven on his heart and his mind. It's evident from the way that he lived. He knew this was temporary. He knew he was going to depart. He knew he had a mission. He knew it was going to be a lot of sorrow, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I found myself writing down and penning these words that I want to be touched by the heavenly man. Wouldn't it be great to have our Savior transform us in such a way that people who came alongside of us in heaven, on earth said, oh, that's a heavenly man. That's a heavenly woman. That's a person that's touched by God, that's on a journey, that's got their focus put upon eternal life. Philippians 3.21 says this, Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the heavenly man. There it is. God help us to bear that image. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You can't buy the kingdom of God. You can't go to God and say, okay, this is what I'm going to give you to inherit incorruption. It only comes through faith in the blood of Jesus and his resurrection. Let's finish up here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Speaking of this resurrection for believers, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. There's going to be this moment in the future where Jesus is going to sound his trump at his com coming, that all who are dead in Christ will experience their physical resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 speaks of this. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are fallen asleep, those who died in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Did you catch that? It's the second coming of Christ. Those who are in Christ that are alive, you're caught up, but who goes first? Those who are dead in Christ. This is going to be amazing. The graves are opening up. All those who have been cremated in Christ, God's gathering them. Sometimes people ask me, well, if I get cremated, does that mean I'm not going to be resurrected? Well, it's the same process as the burial. It's just a lot quicker. So if God can raise up someone who's buried, he can raise up someone who's, who's cremated. So this is happening, and they're going up, and we're going up. So here's the question. What happens when you die, right? Because this resurrection of the physical body of believers doesn't happen till this moment when this last trump is blown. 
We know from scripture, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the moment you die is the moment you go home to be with the Lord. These believers are not in some kind of weird soul sleep. They're present with the Lord, but they haven't received their glorified body. But remember, in heaven, time is different. Peter says, a thousand years to us is like a day unto the Lord. It's not a mathematical equation. It's an illustration where saying eternity, so time is different. I don't think anybody in heaven is going, man, when's my body going to be here? (laughs) This is kind of weird. I'm just kind of hanging up out here as a spirit, and this is weird. I know it's going to happen, but why doesn't this happen? I think it's much more like an eternal now, an eternal now. But at this moment is when we receive our glorified body and put on that incorruption. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. No longer the ability to be corrupted. Through sin, through decay, through disease, put on immortality, never going to die again. When this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass, saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The last enemy. The last enemy is going to be defeated at the coming of Jesus Christ when believers are risen from the dead to receive their glorified bodies. Death swallowed up in victory. It's God having victory over death. It seems right now that death has the final word, doesn't it? When we bury a loved one prior to this moment, it seems like, wow, death, death did have the victory. But we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And there will be that point where we're, a- we're gonna be able to enter into this anthem, death has been swallowed up in victory. The trumpet has been blown and we're rejoicing of God's victory over death. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Why does death bring a sting? Because of our sin. That brings the result of death. And why are we sinners? Because of the law. God has given us the law and that's what causes us to be aware of our sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is the hope of this setting in a little bit? oh man, I'm going to be resurrected. This isn't all there is. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. If God has defeated sin and death, he can give us victory in other struggles in our lives. He can raise us out of other graves. And I'm not saying that everything's going to work out the way you thought and there won't be trials and difficulties But if the resurrected Savior can defeat death, he can also get us through the trials of this life. Amen? So here's the application. We've done all of this for the application. We're just about ready to wrap up. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. There's times in Scripture where God is saying, okay, here's the truth. You will rise as a believer, so here's what you do with the information. Here it is, steadfast. Steadfast is fixed in a direction. That's what it means to be steadfast. I've chosen this direction. I'm gonna keep moving forward in this direction. So be steadfast. Be steadfast in being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a lover of Jesus, being in relationship with him, walking in the things that he's called you to do. Okay, God, my life belongs to you. 
You've died for me. You've risen again. I'm be steadfast in this direction. And then immovable, they're similar, but they're different. Immovable is incapable of being moved. So steadfast is I'm appointed in this direction, and I'm going to keep going. And then immovable is you can't get me off that train. You can't get me to change direction. If you've watched a good bird dog, and the, the, the bird dog's going to stay on that bird. He's immovable. In the same way, because I will rise, Christ has risen, I will rise, I'm not going to move away from what God has called me to do in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's labor. Your labor's not in vain. Your work's the labor of the Lord. Wouldn't it be nice if there was no labor involved? If there was no work involved? But that's why we have to be steadfast. That's why we have to be immovable. Because sometimes we're going to get tired. Sometimes we want to give up. Sometimes we're not going to want to labor. We're not going to want to do the work. So always abound. Take, take those opportunities. Abounding means this, to be rich or well-supplied. Be rich and well-supplied in the work of the Lord. And then this is our encouragement, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Paul firmly believed in eternal life, in the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal reward. Jesus said, lay up your treasures in heaven. I don't know how the eternal reward works, but I know Jesus taught us about it, Paul lived for it, and Jesus said, even a cup of cold water that you bring to a child in my name, I will reward you for. It's a big deal. The reward doesn't come in this life oftentimes, but it comes in eternal life, and God says, keep going. Hebrews 6.10 says this, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're risen. May that impact us. Our risen Savior standing here with us. And we thank you for those of us that are in Christ, that we too will rise, that these bodies will be buried unless the rapture happens, and we will rise to have a glorified body that's incorruptible to pit on immortality. Through faith, we hold on to the fact that death has been swallowed up in victory. Would you bring encouragement? Would you keep us from falling into that trap of just seeing this life for the temporal and not seeing the eternal? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.